we go. So, so uh, I don't know about you, but um, hearing these words can make us get stuck and make us tune out to all the other great stuff that Paul is saying here. So I'm going to jump right in to these tricky verses of verse 34 and 35 about women not speaking in church because I suspect some of you won't be able to listen to anything I say unless I deal with that first, no matter what end of the spectrum you're on in that opinion, with opinions about that issue. So for these next few moments, I'm gonna take a very analytical approach to these verses. And I know that that can tend to bore some people, but the reason I want you to work hard with me here is that this can be one of the reasons why people reject Christianity and the capital C church because they struggle with views that seem out of sync, with views around equality, and in this instance, in relation to gender. And our task as the church today is to help the next generation consider the truth and relevance of God's word then and now. And it was only a few weeks ago that the ABC reported that the Anglican church's teaching on the submission of women was linked and correlated with violence against women. So while such reporting uh, may not always present sorry, uh, all the nuances and complexities of this issue, it still must force us to consider very carefully how we understand the heart and mind of God in these kinds of texts and how we teach on them. Now, obviously, I'm a woman. I'm a preacher. I'm a leader. I'm a teacher. I'm a disciple maker. I'm a worship leader. And I speak in church pretty regularly, and a lot of other women do so here as well. So how do we reconcile what we've just read in this passage with the right theology about women in ministry and women in teaching um, and leadership roles? And how do we reconcile what it seems like Paul is saying here with other parts of his letter to the Corinthians where he said that every single part of the body has been gifted to serve? where he's encouraging everyone, men and women, to seek and practice spiritual gifts, whether that's teaching or prophecy. So what's going on here? Is Paul, the writer of this letter, confused or double-minded? Hmm. We must also consider the wider context of Paul's writings, as well as the context of his ministry. So we know that Paul worked with quite a number of women in ministry. Some of these women were apostles like him. For example, Paul refers to his friend and co-worker Junia as an apostle in Romans 16 verse 7. Some women were senior leaders of churches. For example, Lydia in Acts 16 and Phoebe who he mentions in Romans 16. We know Paul worked with Priscilla and Aquila who were both leaders and who both discipled Apollos in the faith. And Paul is clearly happy with women prophesying and praying in public in the church in Corinth. And obviously he was approving of Philip's four daughters who also were prophets. And we see that in Acts 21. If Paul supported women in teaching and leadership roles in other contexts, why does it seem like he's not here? When we see the word disgraceful as well, this seems both harsh and like a universal blanket statement or a blanket prohibition against women speaking and leading in church. And I think that seems strange in light of his overall theology and practice. Remember, Paul speaks of the kingdom of God as one where every barrier of race, 
of gender and class has been broken down by Jesus. For example, in Galatians 3.28, where he says that uh, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If the effect of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God on social relations on earth now is this, then why re-establish those barriers? Why do the opposite of what you've seen to be God's wonderful will and work? So what is said here in these verses don't really gel with Paul's overall theology and the trajectory of the kingdom of God in the new humanity in Christ. I want us to also look at a couple of immediate contextual clues in this letter to the Corinthians. So this whole section on worship from chapters 11 to 14 includes at its heart in chapter 13 the most excellent way of love which must underpin all Christian worship and life together. This reflects itself in equality, justice and caring for the least and the weaker brother and sister. So in chapter 11, Paul asks them to prefer the poor at the Lord's Supper. And in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul urges them to treat with greater respect the weaker and less honourable parts of the church community. And in this whole section of talking about spiritual gifts, Paul rebukes people who are expressing their spiritual gifts with arrogance and conceit instead of consideration and love. So unity, belonging and love in public worship seem to be key themes in this whole section. Again, these verses about women not speaking in church don't seem to be consistent with Paul's thrust. So one way of dealing with this passage is to assume that he's addressing something very situational. Like what is specifically going on at Corinth that might make him say this? We can only guess at what that might be. And therefore, as readers today, we might say that we don't need to take these verses as universally applicable to us today. That's one way to look at it. But I'd like to suggest another way of interpreting this passage, which I've found really helpful. And this is what Lucy Pepiot suggests. She's the principal of Westminster Theological Centre and a respected theologian. And she proposes that verses 34 and 35 of this chapter are Paul quoting a general opinion held by some people in the Corinthian church, which he then rebuts using a rhetorical question. So rather than seeing this as Paul's thought, he's actually using a rhetorical strategy to make his point. And I tend to agree with this approach and I think it makes more sense of the text. And this proposed way of reading it is plausible because in the original ancient Greek language, there's no punctuation or quotation marks. These are inserted later in our translations to help us as readers. And there are a number of examples of this in 1 Corinthians. I'm just going to put them up on the screen so you can have a quick look. I'll just let you have a quick look for a moment. So if we take this as a feasible proposition, verses 3 to 38 would read very differently. So this is on the screen. Paul says, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And then he quotes this opinion. 
As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Unquote. Did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. And if he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Rather than approaching this text from the assumption that there was a group of wildly rebellious, loud and domineering women, could it be possible in a highly patriarchal society that there was a group of spiritually gifted and highly articulate male teachers whose oppressive practices had been implemented as though their words were God's words, God's law, God's gospel. It was as though they were God's prophets. So when it says, did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anybody thinks he's a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. Like Paul considers here himself to be validated by his calling, his life and his suffering and has been presenting the Corinthian church with a word that undercuts the pride of humanity. A pride that is always seeking to dominate and put others down in order to lift oneself up. At any point that people try to consider themselves above others on the basis of knowledge, gifts, gender, whatever. We're missing the one who is above all. C.S. Lewis said, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Because to state the obvious, our worship isn't about ourselves, but God. The goal of our worship is to show God in all his glory. And so the way that we worship together reflects who God is. The way we worship reflects who God is. As it says in verse 33 of our passage today, that God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Just as God's love isn't selfish or self-seeking or proud, so our worship isn't to be self-seeking or proud. As we reflect more and more the nature and character of God through our worship, the more we'll be edifying and building each other up. This is the natural byproduct, if you like, of worship that is fitting for him. So if God is a welcoming, gracious God, a friend of sinners, a lifter of the lowly and a liberator of the oppressed, then no one's excluded from worship, and certainly not on the basis of gender or race or class, and no one's excluded from contributing to worship. Because all of us who have called on the name of Jesus Christ have been redeemed out of our sin and made acceptable before the throne of God. We all have a valid place in the presence of God in worship. And we've all been freed and enabled to bring it 
in our worship together. And nothing delights the heart of God more. Look at verse 26. When you come together, each of you has a hymn, a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Paul's saying that there's no spectators in worship. We're all participants. So how does our worship here at St. Mark's reflect who God is? How does our worship here communicate? What does it communicate about who God is? So let's think about this using the analogy of sport. So when you go to watch your favourite team play a really important game, and it could be whatever sport you like, footy, soccer, basketball, netball, whatever. And maybe this is the game they've got to win to make it into the grand final. It's a really important game. All their work this season has come down to this match. Now imagine two scenarios, picture this. You're in the stadium and you're amidst all the fans, uh, but you notice that they're quite reserved. It seems that the fans are all very ordered in, and their expression kind of seems restrained, composed, and somewhat predictable. They're all clapping in time and kind of just, you know, politely, calmly. Um, and it all, all seems extremely polite, but it feels somewhat amiss considering the importance of this game. Now imagine another scenario. The fans are all there and they're all wearing their team colours, but the fans this time are overly expressive. They're like uncontrolled, erratic and way over the top. There's lots of yelling and there's even flares going off and brawls happening between the fans and their exuberance is, and their noise is just so unruly that it's totally detracting from the game itself. There's something wrong in both scenarios, isn't there? In the first scenario, the fans aren't participating at the level you'd expect, and instead of contributing to the team's winning spirit, they're kind of draining it by their reservation. Something about them seems stifling to the atmosphere that you'd expect in a game as important as this. And in the other scenario, the fans are so disordered that they're causing disruption to the other fans, to the team, and even to the game itself. Neither scenario is fitting. One has too much order and the other not enough. There's got to be a better way, right? Where there's both enthusiastic participation from the fans and ordered expression. Where there's both freedom and order. I wonder when we come to worship, when we come to the most important game of the season, what sort of fans are we? What sort of fan are you? If we think about the feel of our worship here at St. Mark's, whereabouts would we place it on this spectrum? I might sound a little bit blunt, but I'd probably say we're on the reserved end of this spectrum. There was a quote I read from a commentary that said, the spirit of ardour is also the spirit of order. But perhaps in our context, we need to hear that the spirit of order is also the spirit of ardour. Are we ardently loving and worshipping God? Are we worshipping him in such a way as to inspire the worship among those around us? Does our worship 
reflect the wonder and the grace of the salvation that we've all received in Christ and call others to marvel at it as well? Does our worship reflect the reverence of the God who created and sustains the universe by his infinite presence? Does our worship shout of the compassion of our God towards every single human being? Does our worship declare the perfection of God's morality? Are our gatherings characterized by wholehearted worshipers calling the world to the wholehearted worship of God? This is what I want our worship to be. I want our worship to be so sincere and spiritual that every single person who joins us is powerfully touched by the glory of God and that even our whole community is touched and changed by our worship. But we all need to be a part of it. We all need to participate. We all need to bring it. You know, as a worship leader, the greatest experience of leading people in worship is when the people are leading it themselves, when you're leading it, when the voices, the prayers, the passion, the songs emerge from you, when your hearts are overflowing with praise and thanksgiving and awe, when it's not me or us leading up the front, but all of us leading each other. And you know what, I love seeing Toby and Hannah dancing up the front during our songs with their gorgeous smiles of joy on their faces because it reminds us all of our freedom in worship, of that innocent freedom to express our love for God. They're setting an example for us every single time and they don't know it, but they're edifying us. You know, the church at Corinth had issues where they needed to be reminded that God is a God of order and peace. But if our issue is the opposite, we perhaps need to hear that God is a God of freedom. Perhaps we need reminding that we've been set free through Jesus' ardour for us. Set free to worship him with boldness in his presence, to worship him without fear of intimacy, set free to be filled and to move with his spirit free to participate with others by using our spiritual gifts. Now, I know a lot of us are struggling. I know that so many of us are weary and facing so many battles in our lives. I know there's a lot of people in our community who are broken and struggling in this season of life. And it's been a hard couple of years for most people. How can we bring ourselves freely in worship when it feels like we've got nothing left? And I know that some of you are here today worshipping God in and through your pain and your struggle. And I admire that. Some of my deepest and most powerful moments of worship in church where the Spirit has been ministering to me and others around me have been in the hardest times of my life when I'd been going through loss and heartbreak, but when I've chosen, even in the midst of that, even despite my emptiness, to praise him. Because our worship isn't about those who are feeling great or those who seem to have it all together. Worship is often a sacrifice 
of praise that we bring out of our brokenness. Worship is about all of us together bringing whatever spark of hope, whatever grain of faith, whatever sense of God's comfort that we can hold on to, whatever conviction we have in God's truth, whatever word of promise, whatever spark of love towards our God that we have in our hearts and bringing it with whatever we've got. Because even when you feel bound by your illness, your circumstances, your struggles, your finances, your relationships, or even your fears, you've been set free by Jesus Christ. Your soul has been liberated from darkness, from decay, from death, so that you can worship him freely. What more can it be that God is wanting you to see of him that will liberate you in your worship, that will spark the flame of your ardour. Even if you feel beaten up by life, you still have something to bring to glorify God and edify our church, even if it feels so little. Remember the widow in Luke 21 who gave to God abundantly out of her poverty. I'm going to read it to you from Luke 21 verses 1 to 4. It says, Jesus observed all the wealthy coming into the temple courts, wanting to be noticed as they came with their offerings. He noticed a very poor widow who dropped two very small copper coins in the offering box. Listen to me, he said, this poor widow has given a larger offering than any of the wealthy. For the rich only gave out of their surplus, but she sacrificed out of her poverty and gave to God all that she had to live on. You see, God is thrilled when we bring him whatever we can of ourselves. And not only is he pleased with it, but it has the power to build up the body of Christ in a way far greater than you might imagine. Whether it's a song a prayer, a word, a tongue, a creative expression, a gift of the spirit, a revelation, a cry or a lament, whatever it is, offer it as part of your heartfelt worship and see what God will do with it. So my friends, what can you bring what spark is in your heart that you can bring? What spark of love, of hope, of thanksgiving, of trust, of faith can you bring to our worship for the glory of God and the encouragement of others? Because when we all bring our sparks, we're like a gorgeous array of fairy lights at a party or like a star-filled sky on a clear night, shining with the ardour and order of our hearts for the glory of God. Let's bring it. Amen.